You're listening to Radio Catskill, WJFF Jeffersonville, public radio for the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania. We are Radio Catskill. Support for Radio Catskill comes from Van Gorder's Furniture, featuring Lodge and Adirondack styles as well as rustic collections, with showrooms at Lake Wall and Poppock, downtown Honesdale, and Milford, PA. Van Gorder's Furniture brings the outdoors inside. VanGorders.com. From Dog Mountain Lodge, providing dog boarding and grooming, also boarding cats, birds, and other exotic pets. Located in Keshekta, New York, and on the web at DogMountainLodge.com. And from listeners like you. Okay, one more time. There is a flash flood watch in effect uh, for uh, uh, um, Broome, Chenango, Delaware, Otsego, Sullivan, Tioga counties, among others, in New York State and Northeast Pennsylvania, Lackawanna, Luzerne, Wayne, Pike, and uh, Susquehanna and Wyoming counties. This is the remnants of Tropical Storm Fred. It's pushing through starting now this evening, going right on through until tomorrow morning. Widespread rain, embedded thunderstorms, amounts of two to four inches are likely of rainfall, heavier in some areas, and that's why there's a flash flood watch. Tonight's overnight low only down to 69. Tomorrow's high back up to 76, and we're looking at rain right on through. This is Radio Catskill. We're keeping you connected. Time for Trailer Talk. Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people. Whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline Travel Trailer, from the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. I'm Sabrina and welcome to my virtual trailer. I am speaking with Iris Gillingham from my home in Liberty, New York, in the Catskills. And Iris is in Livingston Manor, New York, also in the Catskills. In her town, the Willowemock River is rushing by. And outside my windows, I have the Fisk Brook. For many years now, she has been involved with environmental activism and advocacy, and she has been one of those youth voices who has been really calling out that alarm for us and raising awareness. So welcome to the show, Iris. Thank you so much for having me, and I'm so glad we got to connect virtually. Introduce yourself to our listeners. My name is Iris Fenn Gillingham. I'm 20 years old, and I was born and raised in the Catskill Mountains in upstate New York where my family has an off-grid farm called Wild Roots Farm. And as a kid, I grew up, uh, you know, we had a community-supported agriculture business in CSA. So I grew up uh, learning and living with the land. Um, My family has experienced flooding that ended up making us have to stop farming full-time for a living. One of the things that propelled me into activism and caring about some of the issues that are going on in the world was the fact that then my dad was uh, looking at these issues of fracking that were coming into our community where they were wanting to lease land to uh, do hydraulic fracturing. And that was something that, as a both as a farmer... And as an you know, environmental advocate and activist, my dad was like, this does not sound right. You know, water is the basis of life and our soil and land is how we grow food and how we make a living. So we should not be contaminating that. And I grew up on land that had been in my family that uh, I'm the third generation to know the hundred acres that my family lives off of. And that is a really special relationship that I've been able to foster and I'm continuing to develop in getting to know who I am and also where I come from um, and the sustainability of being in one place and knowing where everything on your plate comes from and knowing the land um, and the seasons well enough to notice the changes that are being caused by climate change and the impacts of our, um, you know, systems and society that we're living in today. And I'm 
wondering as well, you described the farm that you grew up on and that you are now the third generation to have that privilege, Wild Roots Farm, being off-grid. So I'm just wondering if you can describe what that means and maybe how your growing up was a little bit different from some of your neighbors. Yes. So I grew up off-grid. So we had solar panels my entire life. Until I went to college, I had never had a um, light switch that was electric, uh, connected to the grid. And I was also, I'd always been in a place where I knew what was coming to my table because, I, you know, I'd seen my mom planting it and I'd helped harvest it. And I knew where the water I was drinking came from because we walked to the well to get it when I was younger. And I knew, um, I knew I had a connection to everything around me. And we have three different breeds of sheep. We have Scottish Highland cows. We're, we're a diversified farm. And so we, and we also have a large garden. And so um, that exposure to a different, a reciprocal food ways, a reciprocal lifestyle was very important in me and my childhood and growing up because where we are on the top of the mountain, we have a well that was a dug well, you know, back in the day uh, that my grandmother tasted the water out of and said, this is the water that I want my kids and grandchildren drinking. So when we had people coming into our community saying, we want to frack, that was something that was a red flag because one of the biggest impacts of fracking is the contamination of the water. You know, I have to thank my grandmother for the fact that I have clean drinking water because of where she chose to um, live on top of the mountain. And so I grew up with the idea of the land as being a friend in the relationship, you know, that we're having this reciprocal uh, yes. regenerative relationship. And I was eight years old when this was happening. So with fracking and fossil fuel infrastructure, it's been something that has been a big part of my life, very significant impact and hanging over my family for more than half of my life now. And can you describe what it felt like as a little girl and as a young adult that you are now to know how many threats are being faced in the, the environment, in this reciprocal relationship that we certainly rely on and need? I actually think that because of how I was raised, it was something that seemed very natural to me to protect the water and the land because they are part of our livelihood and that relationship um, of connection. So I actually wrote the first speech for the first fracking rally in the state of New York. Uh, my little brother said it at the time, and I don't actually remember what exactly the speech was. I think we wrote something like, we speak for the children all around the world, uh, and we want to have clean drinking water and clean land to play on or something like that. But my dad picked up my brother um, on his shoulders and he said the speech. And so, you know, at as however old I was as a nine-year-old, I felt like it was very important that we protect our communities. And so the first fracking rally in the state of New York had an indigenous elder and a young person calling for them to not frack in our communities. And I think that's a very significant, um, like that I, I think I've carried with me throughout all of my work is the idea that this is about our communities. It's not necessarily just about one person or one place or a certain ecosystem. It is about the idea that all of our communities are interconnected. And when something is impacted in a negative way. It has repercussions and impacts on the people, um, the surrounding waterways, on all of these areas that are tightly connected in our communities and in our society. I'm wondering if you can talk about the work that you have done about extreme energy extraction with frontline communities and the organizations that you've worked with. 
in doing this around the country? I had the incredible honor and privilege to travel around uh, Turtle Island or North America and meet with communities that are on the front lines of climate change. So and who are these communities, with, if you could describe some of them for us? Yeah, so these communities are all across the spectrum from, you know, frontline communities that are on the Gulf Coast that are obviously experiencing these giant storms and all of these weather impacts that we see on the news to the places in the Bakken oil field where children's schools are being built right next to hazardous waste dumps and where indigenous communities are experiencing extreme racism and um, right there there's the human rights issue of missing and murdered indigenous women where you know you have a lot of women in the community disappearing and sometimes their bodies are found and sometimes they're not due to the the uh, fossil fuel extraction and also the work that um, the workers that are working in the oil fields, but also just the kind of relationships and treatment um, within our society, the extreme racism. So it's you been worked a broad with... spectrum of impacts that I've seen, but in many ways they're all connected and all dealing with issues that are extremely close to um, home for me. Yes, and you worked with Zero Hour and Earth Guardians, correct? Yes. So I, as a young person fighting fracking in upstate New York, was always wanting to connect with other young people who were taking action. And I ended up joining the Earth Guardians National Council in, I think, 2014. And I got to work with 15 to 20 young people from across the country and be trained and do trainings for other young people. And, um, and that was an incredible experience around just how do young people use their creativity and arts to inspire change and on a local and national level. And then I helped to launch an organization called Zero Hour in 2018, where we um, did a big day of action in Washington, D.C. and a march and, um, and have been a part of all of these educational campaigns around getting to the roots of climate change and addressing um, what those roots are, which are, you know, white supremacy and patriarchy and capitalism and looking at these issues that are um, having a direct impact on how we respond to the idea of climate change and how communities adapt. And when we say we're wanting to create a just future, what does that mean? It means right. that we have to step out of the box. That yes. So, so when that is said, a just future, and you just said, so that means stepping out of the box. So stepping out of these structures, right? These frameworks, you mentioned uh, the systemic racism, racial inequities, you mentioned patriarchy and capitalism. So what do you envision? And if we can connect that to the work that you're doing at the moment, you've actually, you are back home because of the pandemic. And I welcome you to share what that means, how COVID has impacted your own life and being in college. But being back home means that you now have become involved with Catskill Moundkeeper, where your father, Wes Gillingham, is the associate director. So you've come back home. You're working on very important projects right now that are connected to what you were just sharing with us. And I'm wondering if you can take us through what do you want to see, you're 20 years old, these systems to look like, this just future and how this connects to our food systems, to indigenous food sovereignty, and to thinking about things differently. So with the pandemic, uh, as most college students, I was sent home and I was actually supposed to be on an internship in 
Bellingham working on helping to organize the next extreme, the 10th extreme energy extraction summit um, on the Lummi reservation. And I came home and uh, I started working for Mountain Keeper. I, <laughs> I had been somewhat resistant to working for, you know, like my dad, the organization that my dad helped found. Um, but I had come with all of these skills and experiences as a young person working for other organizations. So I started working for them. And one of the big things that happened when the pandemic hit was our food system absolutely fell apart. And everyone saw that mm -hmm. from grocery store shelves being empty to the amount of COVID cases showing up in meatpacking plants and and then I think people started to actually outsource and reach out to their local farmers and say, hey, can I buy food from you? Um, because there was this issue and people were paying more attention to, um, they were at home, they could, you know, make sourdough bread or um, look into what they were eating. So I ended up organizing some webinars and getting involved in some of the food systems and agriculture work that Mountain Keeper is involved with. And they run a farmer's market in Liberty and they're involved in soil health policy and all of this incredible um, agricultural work. And one of the things that has been really important for me to recognize, and I think it's really important for people to realize, is that climate change, it's not just data. When we think of climate change, a lot of people think of data and statistics in the IPCC reports. Mm -hmm. But in reality, it is something that is front and center for communities dealing with erosion, flooding, droughts, um, you know, the loss of foodways that indigenous people are experiencing with changing environment where someplace for generations that they've been harvesting ethically and sustainably disappearing. And in farming communities, we have been seeing for last several decades policies going in the direction of bigger and bigger agriculture, which is feeding the climate crisis and not healthy for our soils, for our environment, for our water, because it on such a large scale, you have these industrial farms that are having a negative impact and these small farmers who can barely meet their bottom line and are in debt and extreme debt but because they're dealing with um, flooding or weather patterns. For example, if you have a um, hard season of growing, an industrial farm is much easier going to be able to bounce back from that. But a small farmer who is already in debt, they're not going to be able to make it all the time. And so climate change has an extreme impact on small farms. And small farms are in some ways the answer to adapting and combating the right. climate crisis. What you're also bringing up because of this erasure, this discarding of indigenous knowledge and actual sovereignty and control is also very deeply connected to these systems that these industrial farms are operating from. So what you're bringing up, I mean, you're addressing localism, also this idea of sovereignty, and you mentioned indigenous sovereignty, I think it's important to recognize how that needs to be such a priority for so many reasons. And I know that you do work with this and even are interested in shifting the language around how we even discuss and frame ideas around food systems, right? Yes. I am not an indigenous person. So, you know, I can only speak to this topic as much as a white um, young person learning about it can. But I think that it's really important that we look at history and acknowledge that land has been taken and agricultural land has been taken from um, indigenous people. And I also want to include black farmers in that yes. because the majority of farmers today are white. 
And one of the really important things to recognize is that the idea of um, working with the land is something that has been held by communities of color for generations. So our ways of farming are not sustainable and they're very extractive. Mm -hmm. Yet what we're going to have to learn with adapting to the climate crisis is that we need to be learning from indigenous and black communities that have been working with the land for generations and have some of that knowledge and have been working hard and tirelessly despite all of that they've been put through by our government, by our society. They've been holding on to some of that knowledge and are working to reconnect with some of that knowledge. I think you're describing too is that the pandemic has made this knowledge, this information really a priority. I think everything that's been going on in the country that we've seen with the actions and people starting to listen to voices of these communities that are most impacted by these issues, uh, listening to black people and their, you know, that what they're saying about how they're treated in this country, that is also a very important aspect for us to realize in when we're talking about agriculture and farming and looking at with everything that has been going on in this country, especially with the pandemic, we must realize that if we want to move forward, it's going to have to be different than the way it was. That the idea that people talk about of, I can't wait till it goes back to normal. We do not want to go back to normal because that was a time of normalized injustice. Exactly. And that is something that is so important for us to realize as a society Even though it is really hard to swallow as a white person, we must recognize that we cannot go back to normal because normal was something that we normalized. We normalized a really unhealthy society that ignored the fact that there was extreme racism and extreme violence throughout our history. And with a just transition and when we talk about climate change, and creating green jobs and renewable jobs and looking at moving away from fossil fuels. These are all pieces that are extremely important for everyone to be a part of and at the table for these conversations. Because if we don't share the vision with everyone, then when we, if we, and we focus just on the goal, we might reach that goal, but we'll look around and realize that we left a bunch of people behind. And the leaders of getting us through the process of creating safer, healthier, more sustainable communities, those leaders are in the Black and Indigenous communities already. And they have the knowledge that a lot of white people, organizations, and communities have to listen to. And that's something that I think is really important for everyone to be aware that we give space to young people, to elders, to these communities that oftentimes have been left out of conversations where the conversations have a lot to do with their future. I mean, as a young person, I've experienced this all all the time. (laughs) I'm sure. Well, thank you for for sharing this information and also for acknowledging that what you want and it is also what I want is not to go back to a so-called normal, but as you stated so accurately, the reason we can't do that is that would be going back to a normalized injustice. Uh, And so you as a young person, as an environmental justice activist, you are looking forward to a new way of doing things. And I'm just wondering, before we conclude our conversation, what, do, what message do you have for us? It could be for the elders, the older people. It could be for the youth. But what, what do you want to see? What, what do you want to send us out with before 
we conclude? I think that something we all can do is to work to become more present and conscious with where we are, where our community is, and develop the roots and the relationships within our communities that are going to be vital when we talk about adaptation and creating resiliency in these difficult times. These, I want to say difficult and incredible times because this is an amazing opportunity that our society and especially young people in our society have been given to really create the change that we've been wanting to see for a long time that, you know, we're standing on the shoulders of the teenagers before us and the teenagers before them and, and, and this work that has been done by um, communities for generations. So I think it's very important that we recognize that and we also are able to move forward in a way that um, rebuilds outside of the foundation that was there before because we can easily put up the same buildings that fell down um, and were cracking and we're not very stable, but how do we actually plant a garden instead? You know, like just playing yeah. with what does that look like in our communities? Um, and some of that is reconnecting to um, more regional and localized projects and food practices and reciprocal food ways that are in connection with each other, in connection with this reciprocal relationship with our environment. Um, and Mountain Keeper is doing a lot of projects that are working to make uh, here in the Catskills our communities stronger. And I think that is one of the biggest things is right now is a time of creating the strength that we will need in our communities to keep this work going and to be sustainable in creating change because if we burn out now then there's you know that's not going to be good for anyone so it's just how do we take care of each other how do we support each other how do we support change in the long term thank you so much iris i have to say oh i feel such hopefulness and relief and i'm quite inspired by your vision and knowing that you are 20 and uh, that gives me um, just a, a real uh, feeling of myself even being more determined to take your advice. So thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. And for anyone who is listening, I hope they will uh, join Catsco Mountain Keepers email list and follow us on social media and follow other organizations and groups that are doing really important work um, around the country. Absolutely. So I want to thank you for that. I've been speaking with Iris Fenn Gillingham, who is back home in the Sullivan County Catskills because of the pandemic and has been working with Catskill Mountain Keeper locally, which is the area where she was born and raised and is an environmental activist and has been sharing her knowledge and her vision for our future. So thank you again, Iris. Really such a pleasure. Thank you. To find out more about Catskill Mountain Keeper, please visit their website at catskillmountainkeeper.org. From the kitchen table, out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artell. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artell's Trailer Talk. The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artell. For more information, please visit trailertalk.net. Special thanks to WJFF Radio Catskill and the numerous people who have donated their time, resources, and conversations to make Trailer Talk possible. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artell. Safe travels. You're listening to Radio Catskill. Public radio for the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania. On air, online, on your smartphone, and on your smart speaker. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram. 
from river to river, mountain to mountain. We are Radio Catskill. Your NPR station for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Radio Catskill, keeping you connected. Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people. Whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline Travel Trailer, from the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. I am with Wes Gillingham, who's the Associate Director of Catskill Mountain Keeper. We are sitting on his porch in Livingston Manor in the Catskills of Sullivan County, New York. Wes, thank you so much for taking your time. Hello, and it's good to have an interview with you again. So I am the Associate Director of Catskill Mountain Keeper. I'm one of the co-founders of the organization. I'm also here on our porches on Wild Roots Farm. It is a family farm that we've had and has been in my family for multiple generations. So we live here surrounded by really nice patch of woods and on the edge of the Catskill Forest. And uh, we're really blessed to be here. And I love this place. I feel very fortunate to be here sitting with you outside with the wind. So, Wes, I'm wondering if you can begin by sharing what Catskill Mountain Keeper is charged with doing, what you've been working on, and what you want to share with our listeners. Catskill Mountain Keeper, we have our fingers in a lot of things. We have um, agricultural outreach coordinator who is running the Liberty Farmers Market, Uh, and the school gardens program, which is pretty much on hold now because of the pandemic. Uh, We have someone working over on the other side of the Catskills in Woodstock on preventing, you know, development on the edge of the park. Uh, We are involved in many issues that affect the Catskill region. And when I say the Catskill region, I'm talking about issues that affect the Catskills both locally Um, regionally and then nationally. You know, we really got well known across the country because of our leadership in the fracking fight in New York State and preventing fracking from coming here. Um, The Catskill sits over the top of the Marcellus Shale and this area was destined um, to be a gas field. Um, That's not the case because of the work that we did but in that work, we really started to look at it. We, we can't just be running around fighting these things, such as right now, a very relevant piece of work that happened was preventing the Delaware River Basin Commission from voting on an LNG facility, um, a liquid um, natural gas facility for export. They're gonna, there's a proposal to build an LNG export facility in Gibstown, New Jersey, that would be transporting um, natural gas um, across the world via these very highly explosive tankers. That has a huge impact here in the Catskills, even though that's down in southern New Jersey, because what that means is that that would ramp up the gas production just on the other side of the Delaware over into Susquehanna County, um, Pennsylvania and central Pennsylvania. That would really ramp up the the gas that's sitting there because of the price of natural gas. It would create a new market for them and that would create pressure um, again in Wayne County for drilling and, and such. So that's very relevant issue but during the fracking fight and we were fighting pipelines, the Constitution pipeline, we had a major victory on. What we realized is it, you can't just keep fighting these things. We've got to look for solutions and transition away from that so the communities aren't dealing with a well pad, a pipeline, or compressor station in their backyard. So we were part of a, a collaboration of organizations from across the state, that from Buffalo and um, urban areas in New York City and Long Island and Albany, to work on climate policy, which you know, we called it the Climate Community Protection Act. It ended up morphing into the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act and getting passed in New York State, the most comprehensive um, climate policy in the country right now. Wes, when did this begin? 
well, we spent over four years working on the bill before it finally passed in the final days of the session a year ago. Um, that was a big win. And I just said it was this great climate policy, but it needs to be implemented. So it wasn't a, okay, we won, we can go home now. It's okay, now you got to roll up your sleeves and make sure that the state rolls out a policy, a plan um, that actually works and gets us onto this transition and that communities aren't left behind in the process. This country and this state has a long history of putting that power plant in low-income neighborhoods, um, of the compressor station going up where people don't have the the political um, ability to fight those things. And that's where the term environmental justice comes from, is people, people of color, people of lower income or disadvantaged communities having to deal with the residue of our modern society um, and what the impacts of creating our energy does to a community. That, that's not represented in the, in the economic outlook, um, usually. Glad that you brought that up, environmental justice, and uh, who's, who's most impacted. Based on that, then, a climate bill such as you're speaking about, which has passed, but uh, you're saying needs to actually now be implemented, what does this look like for communities, for uh, the most impacted communities? And Catskill Mountain Keeper works both locally in the Catskills of New York, also regionally, and then, as you said, nationally. So I'm wondering if you can put these pieces of this puzzle together for us. Yeah, so the national work that Mountain Keeper is involved in, we were also founders of something called the Extreme Energy Extraction Collaborative, which was put together as we were fighting the fracking proposal in New York and what we realized, I would go to a hearing and hear, uh, well, we need natural gas because it burns cleaner than coal. And then somebody else would stand up there and say, well, actually, because of the new study by Cornell, um, you know, fracking is worse than coal. And that's not the argument that this, our, this country should be having. We need to uh, have our energy sources that aren't impacting communities, either whether it's being extracted or where it's being burnt and people getting asthma from a coal plant um, or having to deal with the methane emissions in their community. We need to get away from that. And that's, that's where we are on a, a national basis. And really, the world has got to start dealing with that. So this bill that was passed, it wasn't a bill that mandated everything has to happen. It mandated a way, a structure to start designing that change. So there's the Climate Action Council, which has appointees on it, uh, and you know, the DEC is running these, these meetings. And then beyond the Climate Action Council, there's the Environmental Justice Working Group, then there's an Agricultural and Forestry Advisory Panel, and there's a whole series of panels that are going to come up with the, the meat of a plan on how we make that transition. And part of that bill, as we make that transition, is that you know whatever incentives for renewable energy that get um, baked into it, 40% of that has to go to what we call disadvantaged communities, um, you know, which has a whole definition in the law. Um, it is it's not just people of color or or disadvantaged um, economically communities. It's also people that live on the front lines of climate. Um, whether you're in that low-lying valley or on the coast, um, those are all frontline communities. So it's really taking that into account because we need to make a just transition away from our dependence on fossil fuels. And it's kind of interesting, the, the one-two punch that's happened since the pandemic, I think people got really complacent in modern America and, you know, the ease and affluence that exists. A lot of the general public was reaping the benefits of the, our dependence on fossil fuel and our dependence on a system, um, a corporate system that really enables, you know, the real cost of a product, whether it's food or your energy, the real cost to not be represented. Um, you know, cheap, food's really cheap in America. But then as the pandemic hit 
and we saw that only four companies in the entire country own most of the meat and that mo the way that that system is set up that meat production is oppressive to the communities that have to package that and, and the slaughterhouses and then it became a pandemic petri dish and there were these hot spots that broke out so i think people are all of a sudden looking at their food system and i was personally shocked as as the pandemic and the, um, you know, the shutdown played out to realize, you know, one figure, I, you know, I never checked its accuracy, but one, one of the articles I was reading, they were saying 65% of the food um, that was produced in this country was going to the, the restaurant market. The fact that 65% of the food is being cooked for people around the country kind of shocked me. I did not realize that's people were that dependent on restaurants. There's a whole economic fallout from that that we're experiencing now. But also there's a little bit of, there's, it's interesting to me that all of a sudden people are looking at where their food comes from and how it gets to their table and the importance of that. Again, you know, I pointed out the, the cost of the real cost of things. Well, you know, really cheap food being shipped in from across the country it's not representative of what's happening to the chain of workers that are getting it here um, you know cheap food is actually the real cost of that cheap food is usually an exploited population somewhere along the, the line of food production exploited population exploited environment exploited animals right the entire the entire package of it the entire system of it I'm speaking with Wes Gillingham, who's the associate director of Catskill Mountain Keeper, based in Livingston Manor, New York. We're sitting on his porch on his farm outside of the town of Livingston Manor. So, Wes, you're bringing up so many important things, and I'm wondering if you can talk about this crisis, this acute crisis that we're in right now because of the global pandemic and also because of climate collapse. Like, we're seeing this now manifest so acutely for many of us who perhaps weren't as aware as you are. Uh, so I'm just wondering, you know, fires across California and the West Coast, you're talking about the, uh, the fragility and the exploitation of our food system as it exists now. You're also talking about the climate bill that got passed in New York State. So I'm just wondering where you want to jump in for us because you have such expertise in so many of these areas. I see, and I've had conversations with folks, in, in, you know, in some ways the pandemic is a, is a test run for, um, you know, worse things that could happen. Um, and I, I say that not to be a doomsday sayer, but, um, but we have an opportunity looking at this and then the, the science is there and the knowledge is there out amongst the average person now around climate change and the issues that come up about it, whether if you live in California, you know exactly what that means. If you live here in Sullivan County, you know, the years of 2000 to 2006, we experienced 200-year floods and a 500-year flood in a five-year period. That, um, that kind of thing is going to be happening more and more. So we have to start working on solutions to climate, but then also solutions to our own community's resiliency. Um, our ability um, for a local community to be de um, dependent on each other versus um, always looking for that cheap product from some country someplace else. Wes, what do you see as some of those solutions then for a more localized community-based economy, support? Well, I think regional food and product systems is, is incredibly important. It was interesting during the pandemic the farmers here in this area all of a sudden were going out and replanting parts of their field because they were realizing that the demand for their product had skyrocketed. And there were a lot of, you know, a lot of small farmers all of a sudden were faced with not being able to produce enough of what they could sell. That's an adjustment, but that's also something that is hopeful for in terms of the the economy of a local food market for a farmer to be able to um, have a ready-made market and I think that ready-made market that that was in response to the pandemic and the you know COVID shutdown 
but that's not going away you know as we slide back into um less of a you know a shutdown system but people getting out there and doing things partly if you just look at the real estate market and what's happened locally people are moving here out of the city we've had a huge influx of people and that's a strain on our communities but it's also it is a market for local product you know you asked for a solution but i immediately bring up an, another issue if you've got the price of land going up for farmers to expand their operation because a bunch of people from queens and brooklyn are buying up farms and then all of a sudden farms are outpriced that's an issue and that's something that you know communities and I, that's not just happening in the Catskills. That's cr happening across the country. I talked to my cousins in Maine. Um, they're dealing with a huge influx of folks from Boston. Um, I know somebody I was talking to in North Carolina, in the mountains of North Carolina. They've gotten a huge wave of, of folks coming there. Um, and it's really stretching the local economies because you, normally you don't have that kind of migration of population. But we've got it now. And it looks like it's going to be here for a while. Again, you asked for a solution and I gave you more complications, but... These are some of the results of the pandemic and there are many shifts. Uh, so, you know, you're bringing that up in terms of the local economy. And I think what's most important is as new residents arrive, right, new neighbors, that somehow there needs to be some sort of outreach and communication as well. So the needs of our community are also shared with the new residents and neighbors and somehow to figure those things out. But that is a real issue when we're talking about um, land values and property values going up, right? And that we see that happening across the country where people are being pushed out. They can no longer afford to even stay in their hometowns. Uh, so that is certainly a big issue. I wonder, Wes, if you can also talk about as you're saying, during this pandemic, there have been uh, raised awareness around certain crises, but also possibilities, some some wins. Uh, yeah, so kind of what these next steps are. Well, absolutely. Looking at, you know, everything I just said about um, local food sy systems and how people are meeting their their nutritional needs, their basic needs of food. There's this huge opportunity that multiple factors are coming together, one being climate policy. And part of the climate policy and how the plan gets laid out, I mentioned the Agricultural and Forestry Advisory Panel. And it's a, a group of folks that are appointed there, and they're going to be looking at the the systems um, that our country is using, you know, provide wood products and how that fits into climate policy. A, a host of senators in the New York State Senate are actually looking at putting together a, a soil health bill. Now they're looking at that partially because of the climate issue and the fact that, you know, agriculture has the capacity to sequester thousands and thousands of tons of, of carbon into the soil to help with the issue of climate change and the amount of carbon that's in the atmosphere. But at the same time, how do you do that? Well, how do you put carbon in the soil and sequester it? The easiest way to do that is the way that farmers have been improving their soil for centuries and thousands of years is looking at the soil as a holistic system, a living system, not just a, um, you know, a medium to throw a bunch of fertilizer and use insecticide and produce your food, but actually manage the soil, cover cropping, um, and thinking of the soil as thinking not just as dirt, but it's the flora and fauna that provides nutrients for your, um, the product that you're trying to produce. That's happening, looking at the soil for carbon sequestration. At the same time, you have people looking at where their food is coming from. We actually have the capacity in this country to really alter our agricultural system in a way that is better for people, healthier, healthier food, healthier food production, better for and if we're looking at the whole chain of events that gets the food to your table you know better wages for farm workers um, and also less of an impact on the environment if you are doing good husbandry and 
stewardship of your soil, you're protecting the land and the water at the same time. So there's this like sort of converging of events that are that are taking place right now um, and that we really have the capacity as a society to really change and make life better for lots of folks all along the way. Wes, how do you see this as you say, we have this capacity to make life better for so many people across the country. And I know you also think globally. How does this, uh, you're talking about the soil and farming and food. So how does this connect, let's say, to the urban areas? I mean, what are the intersections, right, between different kinds of communities, both in New York State and also across the country when we're talking about solutions for climate change? So where we are in the Catskills, um, you know, we're really close. And this, you know, this goes back to before the pandemic and before a lot of people were talking about climate crisis. But we, we live in such proximity to a huge market for agricultural um, produce um, and food, the basic needs that people need. So much of vegetable production and sales that are happening in New York are coming from California and other places. There's a whole chain, of a full life cycle of impacts to that, whether it's exploited farm workers in California and then shipping, you know, shipping it across country, the packaging that happens in all of that. New York is an extremely agricultural state, and we have the capacity to provide food for people in New York, not just New York City, but across the state in a way that, you know, this country has not been modeling um, food production, and we could do that. I get really excited about the idea of being more sustainable as a, a community, as a small community, you know, living outside of Livingston Manor in Youngsville, but then also being sustainable on a regional basis providing food for New York City, but that's also on a state level. And that could be a model of transition for the entire planet, really. So talk a little bit about this model, this localized, if community by community, people are invested and in creating some sort of sustainable systems, structures within their own communities. What, what is this potential of this model? Well, I would say the the first aspect of this is getting the conversation going. As I mentioned, we're talking about soil health bill, so we're looking at a, like a whole bunch of wonky pieces about um, you know using no-till agriculture, but doing it in a way that isn't dependent on herbicides. Very specific things about agriculture, but I wouldn't put the pretense of telling anybody how to provide food for their region. That has to come from that region. It needs the stakeholders involved in that region and those communities to come up with those solutions. And then there's the issue of indigenous food sovereignty and traditional farming methods and the indigenous folks in this country that are still here and their communities. And then there's the urban community, the rural community, all of those, it's going to take active involvement on an, and the, on an individual basis, an organizational basis, and our legislators to really take it seriously um, instead of just looking at economic numbers, but how we improve quality of life versus just our economic system. And Wes, what else do you want to share with our listeners? What message do you have for them? How can they reach you and Catskill Mountain Keeper? In all of this, this might all sound overwhelming, so I would encourage people to just um, take the afternoon and go sit by a brook or under a tree um, and just feel how good that uh, that feels to be in a natural place um, and think about the importance of that for our future. And that does sound great, and I'm happy to be on this porch with you, Wes. It is overwhelming, I think, these issues for so many people, uh, and not everyone can be actively engaged in, in the way that you are. Well, first of all, how can people reach you uh, and Catskill Mountain Keeper? And then the other thing is just maybe what it's given you in a way, like the work you're doing. I mean, why is this for you the priority? Well, you can go to the website. It's CatskillMountainKeeper.org. That's CatskillMountainKeeper.org. 
And you know, why I do this is because I have known the place that I live, um, this land that's been in my family and then the surrounding forest my entire life. Um, and it's, I've always strived, I learned from my grandfather to have a re reciprocal relationship with where you live. Um, so my relationship to this land gives me the incentive to go out there and protect it and to be try to think of visionary things to do to, to keep the land and have keep the land in the most pristine uh so I have a really strong connection to this particular piece of land, um, but I've also been lucky enough to travel around the country and see others connected to those places. Um, the people I was always most inspired by were ones that had a real strong connection to where they lived. And it really, we're on the edge of some major changes as a society, whether we like it or not, they're in our lab. And human beings have had thousands and thousands of years of learning to adapt to difficulty and change and some of those stories have been really positive and some of them have gone the wrong way people have used up their resources and it's been the the demise of that society but we have an opportunity here to make some really good choices and the more we keep in the back of our head the importance of the land and the environment and where all of our basic needs come from to begin with, the better off we're going to be for the future. Thank you so much, Wes. Is there anything else you want to add? Enjoy it. Enjoy the natural world. It's, it's part of us. Thank you so much. I am speaking with Wes Gillingham, who's the Associate Director of Catskill Mountain Keeper, based in Sullivan County, New York. And we're sitting on his porch on a beautiful early fall day with the wind and the goldenrod uh, surrounding us, apple trees, uh, some uh, cows, ducks, uh, a puppy. Wes, thank you so much. This has been great. To find out more about Catskill Mountain Keeper, please visit their website at catskillmountainkeeper.org. You can learn more about their campaigns and programs, Free New York from Fossil Fuels, Parks and Wildlands, Renewable New York, Farms and Food, Extreme Energy Extraction, and The Victories. On their website, they state... Catskill Mountain Keeper's mission is to protect our region's wildlands and natural resources, support smart development to sustainably grow our economy, nurture healthy communities, and accelerate the transition to a 100% clean energy future in New York and beyond. From the kitchen table, out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artell. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artell's Trailer Talk. The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artel. For more information, please visit TrailerTalk.net. Special thanks to WJFF Radio Catskill and the numerous people who have donated their time, resources, and conversations to make Trailer Talk possible. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artel. Safe travels. The Taliban may be promising that women can return to work and participate in government, but the reality on the ground is more complicated. The stronger the Taliban got, the stronger the threats got. Why one Afghan gynecologist fled her country and the future of women in Afghanistan. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. WJFF Jeffersonville, Radio Catskill. On air at 90.5 FM. WJFFradio.org. Listen to us on your smartphone. Download the WJFF app. Listen to us on your smart speaker. Like us on Facebook. And follow us on Instagram. Radio Catskill, keeping you connected. Support comes from the Law Office of John Ferrara in Monticello, providing legal services in the areas of matrimonial and family law and criminal defense. 
john.ferrara557 at gmail.com. Support comes from The Vintage House on Main Street, Jeffersonville, featuring eclectic furnishings, clothing, antiques, records, and books in a charming 19th century house. VintageHouseJVille.com and on Instagram at VintageHouseJVille. I did call. 